We are starting a little mini-series, a two-week mini-series. We'll be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, and those can be found on page 953 in the Black Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. Uh, We would love to see you get in the habit of handling the Bible, of looking at it and studying it together with us. We're calling this little two-week mini-series The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 the next two weeks. Uh, We're basing this on a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And we've got books for all of you in the back of the room as well. So I'll tell you more about that at the end. Um, But we will be two weeks in 1 Corinthians. And then on Easter, we'll once again be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Then after that, we're going to be studying 1 Thessalonians. We're going to call that series Authentic Church. It's one of the major themes of 1 Thessalonians. What does it look like to be a real church? Uh, We're often sick of people faking it. We're sick of people puffing themselves up, as we'll see in this text, and kind of projecting something that they're not. And so 1 Thessalonians will be a great series for us for the rest of the spring, studying that together. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, um, as I said, page 953 in the Black Bibles, I want to tell you a a little short story to kind of set this up, because as we think about self-forgetfulness, I think children are a good example of what that can look like. Uh, Children are by no means innocent, but they do have this kind of self-forgetfulness that can be a model for us. Um, And so many years ago, there was this four-year-old running through the hallways of a very important place. And this place is called the White House. And this four-year-old was running past armed guards who could have stopped him if they wanted to. He ran past very important heads of state. He ran into the Oval Office And he jumped into the lap of the most important man in the world, President JFK. The time that JFK was president, there was a four-year-old little boy in the White House, one of the few times that there was a little child in the White House. And this is a beautiful picture of self-forgetfulness, of just running to your daddy, not really caring who you are. You see, the, the guards could have stopped him and said, who do you think you are? And what do you think he would have said? He wouldn't have pulled out some resume of accomplishment, right? He wouldn't have said, well, I've graduated from Harvard and I've got this kind of security clearance. No, he would have said, that's my daddy. That's my daddy. And I believe that's a picture, just a little glimpse. It's not everything, but it's a picture of what Christian self-forgetfulness, Christian humility looks like. We're not really thinking about us. We're caught up in the Father's love for us, which frees us then to love other people. So that's going to be what we're studying the next two weeks. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to start in verse 21 and read through chapter 4, verse 7. So it's kind of the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. So starting in verse 21, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. A little background, the Corinthian church was caught up in division and boasting in the men that they followed. So they thought being aligned with the right leader or the right party or the right organization gave them standing that others didn't have. Would never happen to us, right? That's not a thing we deal with. So Paul says, again in verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? My wife found this quote from a blog, and we were unable to find the originator. So if you're a blog writer and this is your quote, let me know, and I can give you credit for it later. But it talks about the freedom that children have. And the quote, it says, The greatest example of humility is seen in children, because children are able to forget themselves. Children are unfettered by what those around them may think of what they say or do. And because they are not thinking about themselves, children have no scruples about squealing with delight or wailing in despair. Their passion for things, their zeal for life isn't self-centered. It is outside of themselves. So again, children are by no means innocent, right? Uh, We don't really believe that children are without sin. If if you're a parent, you know that, right? But there is this perspective that children have that we lose as we age, and that is this self-forgetfulness. That is this vision of not really thinking about self, but thinking about the object that you're adoring. And that's really the call to us as Christians, that we would be those kinds of people, that we would adore the Father. And as we adore him, forget about ourselves, not really be thinking about defending ourselves or puffing ourselves up, but be free to serve and love other people. So that's what we're going to be thinking about, praying about the next couple of weeks. Let me pray for our time as we look at this text more closely. God, thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've given yourself to us in Jesus, and we pray that we would be a people that are supernaturally changed by this. We're putting together words and thoughts to try to describe the mystery of what you've done for us in Christ. And we know and we confess, Lord, that only you can make that mystery real in our lives by your Holy Spirit, supernaturally working. So we pray that you would work now, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Corinthian church, one of the major problems was division. It's interesting, Corinth was one of the major cities of the Roman world, and they had a lot of gifts, they had a lot of strengths. And the dark side of being strong people, of being gifted people, is we often put too much stock in our own gifts. We think too highly of ourselves, we think too much of ourselves, and they had a lot of problems like that in Corinth. And so the first thing I want us to look at in this little section by Paul is this concept of self-centered division. Self-centered division. People are divided into parties, into factions, because, Paul is saying, they're focused on themselves. There's a little bookend for this section. Uh, Depending on your Bible translation, you know, they all put the paragraph breaks in different places. And what I read here doesn't necessarily seem like an official break, but you'll see that at the beginning he talked about boasting, and at the end he talked about boasting. So the question is, what are you boasting in? And what Paul is saying is, if you're boasting in anything other than Jesus, that causes fractures and divisions among people, whether it be your family, whether it be a team you work with at work or in the church. Uh, We know from the history of the last 2,000 years that churches are often known for schisms and divisions and fracturing, comparing themselves to each other instead of just enjoying the grace that God has for us in Jesus. 
So look again at 321. At 321, he says, so let no one boast in men. He said, okay, don't boast in men anymore. I encourage you to go back and read chapters 1 and 2 that talk about this division problem. And he hammers it home again and again in chapters 1 and 2. He's continuing with a theme he's already been hitting in 1 Corinthians. And he's saying, don't boast in men. Why? For all things are yours. What does that mean? He doesn't mean all things are yours in these men that you follow. He means all things are yours in Christ. If the God of the universe has adopted you into his family, has saved you, has placed you at his table, then you've got everything you need. You don't need to continue to fight and scrap and compete with other people to get ahead by aligning yourself with the right party or with the right team. He says all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, Cephas was Peter's other name, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Everything is yours. We have this incredible inheritance in Jesus. If we, if we realize everything we have in him, we wouldn't be looking for it elsewhere. He goes on in verse 23, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. He's saying there's this, there's this unity, like we're, we're secure. We're hidden in Christ. Christ is in God's hand. We're, we're one. We're seated, as he says in Colossians, we're seated in the heavenly realms, with Christ now, there's a sense in which we, we have everything we need. We don't have to keep fighting for it. We don't have to keep jockeying for position. He says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's saying, right now, you're dividing up and you're saying, well, I follow Paul because he's the one that planted the church. And someone else is like, well, I follow Apollos because he's the smart one that's really educated in all the best Greek schools. And someone else is like, well, I follow Peter, Cephas, because he's the one that, that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to, right? He's really in charge. You know, like we're, we're sidling up and saying, which is the best leader that makes me look good to be on their team? And Paul's saying, we're all just servants. We're just servants of Jesus. You don't want to be on our team. You want to be on Jesus' team. And we have to make sure we understand that difference. Being at the right church doesn't make you right. Being in the right uh, neighborhood doesn't make you right. Being of the right race or tribe doesn't make you right. It's being on Jesus' team. It's by faith knowing who he is and trusting him. Then that frees us up to not divide along those other lines anymore. I grabbed a picture here of a team huddling up. We see this in sports. I can remember in sports when things were going badly, you could either justify yourself and say, well, I did everything right, but so-and-so dropped the ball, right? Has that ever happened to you? You would never be judgmental on a sports team, right? Or you might just be beating yourself up. I didn't do everything right. Oh, I messed up. I messed up. I got to stop messing up. Either way, if it's a self-centeredness of pride or it's a self-centeredness of shame, it blows the whole thing. It's really amazing when you, you play a sport long enough or even forget sports if you play a musical instrument long enough. Or maybe you're learning some other art form. You're learning to paint. You're learning to dance. Maybe you're, you're learning some skill at work, right? You're getting good at some project. The first time it's hard, and you're having to tell yourself and focus on yourself, do this, then do this, right? You're like, step one, I got to do this, and step two, I got to do this. But when you've done it a million times, you don't have to think about yourself anymore, do you? You're free to no longer think about yourself. You're free to think about the goal. And that's just a little illustration. I think most people have experienced that in some area of life where you get to that point where you're like, I'm not thinking about myself anymore. I'm thinking about the mission. 
And that's the beauty of self-forgetfulness. We are settled. I'm loved. I'm adopted by God. I belong to his family. I don't need to fight and scrap for position anymore. Now I can just love the people around me. And, and we all desire to be there, and we all struggle to get there. But Paul's saying this is the roadmap, recognizing who Christ is and what he's done. So I have a few questions for you. Um, diagnostic questions. Do you allow your accomplishments to separate you from other people? Has that ever happened to you? Where there's a conflict at work, there's a conflict in the family. This would never happen in a family, right? There's a conflict with someone you're close to and you say, well, look at what I've done. And you're justifying yourself. I've done the right thing. If they would do the right thing, then we'd be cool. Do you allow your accomplishments to to cause division between you and other people? Another question to ask is, do you allow your shame to cause division between you and other people? Do you allow your shame, your memories of something terrible you've done or something terrible that was done to you to make you think, I don't deserve to be in a relationship with this person or I don't deserve to be on this team, or I can't win, or I can't accomplish this because you're so focused on your shame. The beautiful picture that that Paul's painting here is if we become self-forgetful in the gospel, then we're not justifying ourselves through our pride, like look at all the great things I've done, and we're not justifying ourselves by whipping ourselves in our shame. That can be a type of self-justification as well. I'm just going to sit in my shame. I'm going to beat myself up. I'm really terrible. That's a way of trying to earn salvation. Um, Keller quotes C.S. Lewis. One of the first Christian books I read, which I would highly recommend, is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Fantastic book. He's got a great chapter on pride. And uh, Keller is quoting Lewis, and now I'm quoting them. So this is like a quadruple quote here. So who knows which word comes from who. But he says this, if, if we were to meet, a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. That's not what would be the first thing in your mind. If you meet someone really humble, you wouldn't be thinking, oh, they're such a humble person. And they would not always be telling us that they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody. That's often how we think of humility, which is why Keller and why I am using the term self-forgetfulness, because humility has this connotation of like, I'm terrible, you know, whipping yourself something wrong with me. He says, a truly humble person would not always be saying that they're a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. So sorry, I know that's half of you in the room. Um, I'm one of those people, okay? I'm with you. I feel your pain. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Famous quote. It's been quoted by a million people now. So it's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's being free to not think of myself anymore. So if you meet a truly gospel, humble person, a self-forgetful person in Christ, you'll just walk away going, wow, that person loved me. You, You wouldn't really be thinking about how awesome or how terrible they were, right? You're just like, wow, I I feel loved. I I feel thought of because they weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking of me. Paul talks about in Philippians. He talks about putting others above yourself. Again, it's not a shaming yourself. I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. It's just loving other people. 
what would it look like if we learned to just actually love and serve other people? Well, there would no longer be division. The next thing I want us to focus on is this little phrase that Paul uses. He says that they are puffed up. They are puffed up. I'm going to zero in on verse 6 in chapter 4. Look at verse 6 in chapter 4. He's already used the term boast. As I said, he uses the term boast at the beginning and the end of this section. And then in chapter 6, or chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So he's already used the term boasting, and he uses that many times. And now he's using the term puffed up, which he uses a lot in 1 Corinthians, right? And so again, think of Corinth, the very famous city, a very immoral city, but a very famous and important city. So you've got a church full of famous and important people who may still struggle with sin quite a bit, but they're powerful and they're gifted and they're influential. And Paul says, you know what? You've got a lot of projecting going on, which is interesting. There's all these different words for pride in the New Testament. Um, boasting is a word that occurs a lot of times. It's just praising yourself or somebody else. Um, this word is puffed up. Another word that's often used is um, literally projecting, right? Like casting a bigger image of yourself than really exists. Remember the, uh, the movie, the, uh, I'm blanking now, the Follow the Yellow Brick Road. What's the movie called? Wizard of Oz. Thank you. You do remember the movie. Remember what happens when they go to see the wizard? They go to see the wizard and he's got this projector that makes him look like this giant scary guy, right? And then the little dog pulls back the curtain. He's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's the problem that was happening in Corinth. They were projecting. And so here he uses this especially physical, tangible, tactile word of puffed up. It was often used in a medical sense if someone was bloated or had distended guts or something. Sorry, that's gross. But they could be puffed up in an unhealthy way. A really simple way to think about it would be a balloon. I grabbed a picture here of some kids throwing water balloons. Just a couple more weeks, it'll be 100 degrees every day. And we will want to throw water balloons for those of you from up north. Surprise, it's coming. Um, and water balloons, when you're filling them, it's really interesting. Have you ever filled water balloons? You're filling them. If you don't do it just right, right, they pop while you're filling them because they get too puffed up. Or maybe this has happened to you when you're blowing up just a, a balloon with air, right? Have you ever done that? You're blowing up a balloon, and you think the balloon should be this big, but the balloon only wants to be this big, Right? And so you keep going and you keep going and it bursts. And so Keller says that this term that Paul is using, which is a very tangible term, would, would give that connotation in their minds. He's purposely saying, you don't have a real self. There's no, there's no depth to yourself, but you're puffing yourself up. You're puffing yourself up. Keller uses the terms empty, painful, busy, and fragile. That's our self, apart from Christ. We're puffing ourselves up. But is there any real depth there? The, the danger is that we would just pop, right? That we would just burst and be discovered for the fraud that we are. Soren Kierkegaard was an a interesting Christian philosopher who you can read his books and find a, good, a few good quotes, but it's really hard to finish his books. Um, but he has this one book called Sickness Unto Death, and he talks about that kind of fragile emptiness that we all feel as human beings. Like we're just longing for something to fill that brokenness inside us. 
And the danger with the Corinthians was that they were puffing themselves up and saying, I I belong to this team. I belong to that team, right? It's like when you follow a sports team and you're like, I'm great because those guys that live in another city won a game. And that somehow makes me a great person, right? Picking on you a little bit there. But does that actually make you great? We, We puff ourselves up by attaching ourselves to these things. It's fascinating when you think about that emptiness, that fragility, that that difficulty that we have inside, you see this with celebrities a lot, right? We look at celebrities and we think, it must be great to have all that attention and fame and money. But often when you get to know them, you recognize that they are on shaky ground, that they are just one bad review away from completely losing all self-esteem. There's this quote I got. um, This is Chris Evans, who plays Captain America. Everybody loves Captain America, right? We're at Fort Hood. You got to love Captain America. He's become famous for being a symbol of uh, male attractiveness, I guess. A a symbol of a good-looking guy, right? And he says this about that. I don't consider myself that way. Many actors are saddled with raging insecurity, and I am no exception. I'm drowning in it. That's just one quote. I found like 15 quotes like this online. You can just go Google uh, insecurity of celebrities. You'll You'll find a lot. Blaise Pascal says it this way. So Pascal was a famous philosopher and mathematician. He talked about this concept called the God-shaped hole inside us. Have you ever heard that phrase before? God-shaped hole. Common concept. Um, Pascal was one of the originators of this. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. So we're a balloon that can only be properly filled with God himself, which makes the balloon stronger than it was in the first place. But instead, we're just puffing and puffing and puffing and puffing it up. And Paul's saying, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You're just going to have to keep scrapping and fighting and moving. You're going to have to stay busy. You're going to keep stuffing things, but none of them are really going to fit. As Pascal says, it's this infinite abyss that can only be filled with the infinite God. One of the ways that we often try to fix this problem, Keller talks about in his book, is with self-esteem. Have you ever heard the phrase self-esteem? It's really fascinating. In the ancient world, uh, when someone's a jerk, they thought the problem was that person was a jerk, right? In the modern world, when someone's a jerk, we say, oh, poor thing, they need higher self-esteem, right? Which is really kind of funny. And Keller's point is neither one really works, right? Just condemnation doesn't fix people and saying, you're great, you're great, you're great. That doesn't really fix people either, right? That's kind of the gospel of Oprah is just think how awesome you are. You're so awesome. You're so great. You're so awesome, right? And what Paul's pointing out and what Keller's pointing out, and I think what all Christian preachers have pointed out, is neither one really really works, right? Shame doesn't fix the problem, and pride doesn't really fix the problem. Either way, we're just puffed up. Keller says this. This is kind of a test for you. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It would not keep them up late. It would not bother them. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think, on other people's opinions. 
Now, the world tells the person who is thin-skinned and devastated by criticism to deal with it by saying, who cares what they think? I know what I think. Who cares what the rabble thinks? It doesn't bother me. People are either devastated by criticism or they're not devastated by criticism because they didn't listen to it in the first place. They will not listen to it or learn from it because they do not care about it. They know who they are and what they think. In other words, our only solution to low self-esteem is pride, but that is no solution. Both low self-esteem and pride are horrible nuisances to our own future and to everyone around us. So two ways the world can fix this, right? Let's whip ourselves in shame or let's puff ourselves up with high self-esteem, pride, hubris. Neither one fixes it. So in the end, Paul is telling us that really only the gospel will fix us. In the ESV translation, it uses the word acquittal. Depending on your translation, you might have different phrases here. In verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, I'm not really aware of anything against me. In another translation, he says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me acquitted. That doesn't justify me, right? So Paul says, my conscience is clear. Like, I don't think I'm really guilty for anything in particular here with you people, but that's not what justifies me, right? And so we have to clarify that. Your high self-esteem doesn't justify you. Only Jesus can justify you. So the acquittal, the justification, the declaration of innocence that can only come through Jesus, that's the only thing that can make us truly self-forgetful, that can make us about others instead of constantly fixated on ourselves. So let's look again at chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. So Paul, it sounds like he's starting off saying, I'm one of those people that doesn't care what the rabble thinks. I have self-esteem. I'm not judged by any human court. I don't care what your human court has to say about me. But then he adds this other phrase that's really interesting, and he says, I do not even judge myself. So it's not pride. It's not self-esteem. It's something different completely. Verse 4, he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself. My conscience is clear. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So what Paul is saying is the acquittal comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from me. Justification, the word in Greek that's translated acquittal here is justification. It's the word righteousness being applied proactively to someone who's not righteous. All of Romans, all of Galatians talks about this word again and again and again. In this universe, there is only one who is truly righteous by his own power, by his own strength, that is God. We are not. We are sinners. The Christian gospel is that we've drifted from the righteousness that God designed us for. But through Christ, our sins are nailed on him and his righteousness is imputed or given to us as a gift. So now we can be made righteous. That's what the word justification or acquittal means. It means someone who was broken and sinful and rebellious has now been given innocence, has been given righteousness, has been given justness. That's the word most often translated justification. So if you trust in Jesus, do you know what this means? This means that when the God of the universe looks at you, he knows about your sin. You can't hide anything from him. But if you trust in Jesus, 
He's placed your sin on Jesus, and he sees you as perfect, as holy, as righteous. Do you believe that? Do you have the freedom to come and jump in the lap of the king of the universe knowing that he accepts you completely in Christ? Do you have that kind of transparency with God, knowing that you don't have to to dance or to fight or to scrap or hide under someone else's wings, but you can come to him in Christ, knowing that he loves you? Do you have that kind of freedom of self-forgetfulness. I think one of the great images throughout Scripture for this judgment being given to us is the blessing. Uh, We have this concept in ancient cultures. It's kind of becoming a forgotten thing in our current day and age, but I think we've all experienced something like it where someone who really mattered to us bestowed blessing on us, said, I love you, you're enough, I, I trust you, right? Somehow granting acquittal, innocence, righteousness to us, right? Obviously, it's not the same thing as the God of the universe doing it, but we have a sense of what that feels like. Uh, maybe you've had a mentor that, that blessed you. Um, I had a, grabbed a picture here from the recent movie, Black Panther. That was one of the kind of beautiful things you saw, this interaction between father and son. There was kind of a good father-son relationship and a negative one in this movie, and you see a father bestowing blessing on someone. A lot of us didn't have a father to bestow a blessing on us, but we might have had a mentor. Maybe someone you worked for. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a teacher. Have you had that person in your life that said, you got this, right? Well, in a, in a cosmic scale, in a cosmic sense, the, the only way we can have that full blessing, that absolute acquittal, that declaration of righteousness is through Christ. How are we doing on time? Okay, I'm going to read a short little passage from Romans 3. If you want to go back and study this some more, Romans 3 is just this pivotal point that talks about this. In Romans 3.21, Paul says, Now the righteousness or the justness or the acquittal of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So just a little explanation of where Paul is going in this argument in Romans 3 There's this division in the church that he's addressing, always addressing these divisions. And what Paul is saying, there are those of you that try to live by the law, you know what? You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've sinned too. And there are those that know they're sinners. They've sinned too. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you were brought up in. It doesn't matter how much shame and baggage you carry with you. It doesn't matter how much pride and self-esteem you have. Neither one can save you. Only Jesus can save you. It's only trusting in what Jesus has done. That's the only way that justice, righteousness, acquittal can be granted to you. Do you believe that? What Paul's saying is as we believe that, as we grow in that, as we remind ourselves of that every day, that's what gives us the freedom to stop thinking about ourselves, to say, my, my daddy loves me, so, so now I can go love others, to be self-forgetful. As we think about all the different ways that this can look in our life. I want to come back again to the image of children because Jesus uses this picture and he says that we should be like children when we come to God. A couple different places in the Gospels. Jesus says, unless you humble yourself like a child who is utterly dependent on those that care for him, unless you humble yourself and come to me like a child, you'll, you'll never truly know me. You'll never walk in the kingdom. So that, that's my question for us. Do we know what it looks like to, to depend on the grace that the Father has given us 
in Christ. Paul says in Romans 3.27, then, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. We can't boast in anything we've done. We can't boast in our shame. We can't boast in our successes. He says, by what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from any works. We're justified by trusting in the grace that Jesus gives to us. The more we trust in that, the more we understand that, the more we live out of that, we'll be self-forgetful in a way that enables us to think about others, to put others before ourselves. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the grace that you give us in Jesus. We confess that we're a people that often worry too much about ourselves. And instead of trusting and resting in you, we often rest in our accomplishments. Or instead of trusting and resting in you and the righteousness you give us in Christ, we're distracted by our shame and our pain and our hurt. Father, help us to trust that you are good. You've taken our sin. You've adopted us. You've chosen us as your children. You've set us at your table. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd asked a friend to share a little testimony about this book, and he actually was sick, so he had to go home. He shared it with the morning service. But he talked about how in his own life, this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, had made such an impact on him. Um, We can often trust in some experience maybe you had at a Christian camp when you were a kid. Or you can trust in your own accomplishment. Maybe you tell yourself, man, I'm doing a good job because of my hard work and people respect me and I just got a promotion. Whatever it is that you're tempted to trust in, Jesus calls us to trust in him. And only as we stop puffing ourselves up, either in shame or in the pride of accomplishment, only then can we be self-forgetful in a way that actually gives real Christian joy. This is a supernatural thing. This only comes by the grace of God. It's not something that we can build or accomplish. So we got enough books. This is a really little book. It only takes 30 minutes to read. Um, We got enough of these for every household to have one. So we'd like all of you to take it. I'd like at least one person from each household to take this and to read it. Maybe share it with your roommate. Share it with your spouse. Share it with someone else in your family. And then I encourage you to pass it on. our, our dream would be that this whole gospel identity concept, being completely free in Christ and being able to love others because of it, would be something that would ripple out into our families, into our neighborhoods, to those around us, to those you work with. So I want to encourage all of you to grab one of these, take one for each household, um, and then we'll see what happens.